0: Welcome back to America's Talking. Today, I am pleased to be speaking with Melissa Giller. Melissa serves as the Chief Marketing Officer for the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute in Simi Valley, California. The library houses 63 million pages of gubernatorial, presidential, and personal papers, and over 60,000 gifts and artifacts. I'm, literally, I'm imagining the scene in Indiana Jones where they're in that hall, and it's like the Sphinx and, you know, the architect, all that stuff, uh, chronicling the, the lives of Ronald and Nancy Reagan, and now also serves as the final resting place of America's 40th president. Welcome, Melissa.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I was doing a little research before our interview on the history of presidential libraries. I did not know it's relatively modern. Apparently. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It's basically FDR is con- it's considered the first person to do it. Donated all of his papers in 1939, after leaving office. But since then, obviously a ton has changed. I'm interviewing you um, in Chi- I'm in Chicago right now. Melissa is in California. Uh, the Obama Presidential Library in Chicago, for example, is famously. Uh, not really a library. There's not a research library there. They don't plan to house any papers there. It's more of a sort of training and events type of center. I'm wondering, uh, what is the purpose of a presidential library today? How should we be thinking about that?
1: Sure. So, you know, they're called the presidential library. So we're the Reagan library or the Obama library or the Bush library or the Clinton library, but it's sort of a, you know, confusing name because we'll get calls, you know, can I borrow books from your location? Or, you know, do I need a library card to come visit your location? We're really a museum. And uh, to your point, that's what President Obama's will be. We're a museum of the life and times of your specific president. So at the Reagan Library, our museum covers Ronald Reagan from boyhood through post-presidency and his passing. Um, The library portion is the archive section that you just sort of rattled off, right? So they are all here on our premises. And if you are a researcher, a scholar, a student, a teacher, and you're writing a paper or a book or whatever it may be on a topic, let's say the Cold War and the Berlin Wall, You would contact our research room, you tell them the specific things you're looking for, the dates or the people, and then our archivists will actually go through our archives and find the papers and memos and speeches um, that circles that topic. And then you can come into our research room and they will share those documents with you. That's what the library side of it is. Um, It's getting very cost prohibitive to run these libraries. So the Obama Foundation made the decision, and we actually think it's a smart decision that will get carried out going forward to separate the library from the museum. So all of Obama's artifacts and papers and photos and all of that and gifts will be housed at centrally at the National Archives and Records Administration, mm-hmm. I think in Virginia or Maryland, where NAR operates all the libraries out of, and then the location, as you said, will just be events and museum. Uh, we wouldn't be surprised if this is the new model going forward. It's actually cheaper for the government to run it that way, um, so it's pretty smart.
0: Right. Well, and I mean, I would think if you're doing presidential research, you might want to have most of the presidential things in one place rather than That's contacting right. right like a dozen libraries. That's saying, right. Hey That's can I right. have access to these papers. Okay, so more That's centralization. Right. And then, how does that that funding really work? Is the federal government uh, the primary funder mostly of these presidential libraries and sites?
1: Well, and to answer that again, why we think the Obama model will be the model of the future, uh, the federal government funds the National Archives portion of the library and museum. So all of the archives, the archivists that oversee those archives, um, the security guards that manage and maintain those areas, all paid for by the federal government. But um, for the most part, the foundations, I happen to be a foundation employee. I know it gets a little confusing. The foundations are funding the museums and the exhibits, the education, the programs. Um, And so not all libraries, ours, for example, and the Bush is the same, Bush 43. um, The foundation's actually taken over the museum to help the government with costs. So we pay for the front desk staff um, and the membership staff and things like that. It's not like that in all, in all museums. So in some of the museums, the National Archives is still running the museum. So that's a higher cost to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it just, there are different hybrid models depending upon the presidential library and foundation that run them.
0: Got it. Well, thank you for letting me nerd out on the operations and funding of presidential <laughs> libraries. I was very curious about it. I feel totally informed now. Okay. Good. <laughs> so to the subject of your library, uh, ronald reagan obviously a an icon especially uh on the american political right on the level of a lincoln um i don't think that's that's um hyperbolic to say uh just historically for the american political right uh, what do you find that republicans often uh mistake or overlook about reagan's legacy i often think about the fact that he challenged an incumbent republican president which was unheard of at the time right and i probably not Something that maybe uh, Republicans born in the last thirty years understand or know about. What are those things that you think are overlooked or perhaps misunderstood by by uh, folks on the right?
1: So um, the one that pops to mind first and foremost, overlooked by those on the right, but absolutely by those on the left, is um, you know, yes, Ronald Reagan was an actor. That was the starting point. Well, he actually started as a radio announcer, but between from radio and acting before he became a governor. People forget that the ideas he espoused as governor of California, president of the United States, didn't start in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. These were ideals he believed in from the formation of him coming up with ideas, right? So in the 50s, he was giving speeches um, locally and writing essays about the importance of freedom around the world, about the importance of ending communism. Um, He was... um, the president of the Screen Actors Guild in Hollywood. I think he's the only president to ever be a union president, as well as the president of the United States. And during his time as president of the Screen Actors Guild, he fought communism. Um, These are feelings and beliefs he has always held. And in fact, on display here at the library, we have um, essays and papers he wrote in high school and college on display where he shares, I mean, maybe not communism, but the 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 prose in those essays show that these really are his thoughts. You know, this is more a left side than a right side, but we're always told he was a puppet, you know, that those right. weren't his ideas. He was an actor. He was delivering remarks. Right. Uh, and you look at these high school and college papers and you're like, no, these, This Ronald Reagan was saying this at mm. uh, 18. The, they were core beliefs and ideals that he held and principles he fought for his whole life.
0: And where did those... What informed the formation of those ideas for him at a young age?
1: So, um, in the, try not to be too long in my answer, but um, I don't know how much you know about him. His father was an alcoholic. Um, his mother was a very devout Christian, um, and he was super, super shy. It turns out that he didn't have good eyesight, and before they realized he needed glasses, not being able to see caused him to be very shy and inward. And he read. He spent years and years of his life sitting in his room reading books. Um, And through learning from his mother's Christian beliefs and her um, sharing with him the principles of importance of leadership and true value and moral character. That's where a lot of it actually started from. Um, the one thing he really learned from his dad was that all people are created equal. His father believed so strongly. It did not matter if you are, were white skinned or black skinned, or, you know, you were of Asian descent, um, you were equal. And he learned some very valuable lessons. His father wouldn't get gas at a local gas station because the, um, his father was pumping gas one day, or I guess at that time, attendants pumped gas, but mm-hmm. the father, his father was at a gas station one day, and the gas station wouldn't serve a black family. And so um, Ronald Reagan's father made a huge deal of, we will never come back to this establishment, and they didn't. So Ronald Reagan learned a lot from his parents, and the point of me bringing up that his father was an alcoholic, Ronald Reagan learned perseverance. Um, he learned adversity. Um, he learned the importance of the American dream, because there were times where he writes about this in his autobiography he would come home as a high schooler or in college and his father would be drunk passed out on the didn't even make it in the house you know in the snow on the porch at the his porch and ronald reagan to drag his father into the home um and his father had a hard time keeping a job so they were always moving um and all of these different things living in small towns um i think that's where he you know especially the national pride and, and american dream came from a lot of the freedom and democracy and ending communism and ending the Cold War really came from the 50s and 60s. Um, following his acting career, he was the spokesperson for General Electric Theater and he was paid to travel the United States, going to different GE plants and talking to them and learning. You know, He, he would meet them face to face, handshake to handshake, learn about what was bothering that town, those people, what they saw um, were the issues of the day, and he would turn those into his speeches. And he talked often about it was those speeches and traveling as a GE spokesperson that did actually sort of form his later years thinking.
0: Mm, That's, that's fascinating. That's really, really fascinating. And I I often forget about his family history and the fact that uh, most people who have a parent who is unstable or unpredictable in that way, And it can either completely break you or it gives them almost too much responsibility at a young age where you need to step in and be that constant and unifying force, which obviously has many other implications uh, throughout the rest of his life. So uh, I asked on one side on the right. That was a fabulous answer. I'm very curious. Obviously, uh, on the American left, broadly, I think Reagan is considered alongside figures like uh, Margaret Thatcher and is the subject of so much scorn. And uh, particularly, I think, and this is uh, due mostly to media in the last 15, 20 years, the drug war has become a really, looms large in sort of the left's uh, picture of Reagan. What do you think are some things uh, that the American political left overlooks or or doesn't understand about Reagan?
1: So not to repeat my answer, um, but the one we deal with most often that is really upsetting to us is the left's, not stereotypically everybody, but there's a strong belief from the left that Ronald Reagan was a bigot. Um, And it couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, I shared the story about um, the gas station attendant and and um, uh, Ronald Reagan carried this through his whole life. In fact, as president, I can't remember what year it was, but it was in the beginning of his presidency. He read a news story about a um you know, m- middle class hardworking African-American family, and someone burned, you know, a, a cross in their lawn. and Ronald Reagan as president, went to their house and had a meal in their home um, to show his support. He wasn't doing it for um, the sake of the media. In fact, he didn't let the media know he was going. Um, he wasn't trying to get praise. He was doing it because his belief in equality for all mankind. Um, I think that's what gets overlooked most often. Um, he, His character and his, um, uh, his strong morals um, are unmatched and parallel. There's, there's, of course, there are other people, but it's not, you know, how many fingers, um, and I think that gets forgotten sometimes.
0: Mm. So one part of his legacy that I think is also forgotten, you tell me if I'm wrong, uh, among people outside of California is his gubernatorial Mm -hmm. tenure. And I'm curious, so I believe he won, so in 1966, he won by more than 10 points, I think it was like 13, 14 points uh, as a Republican in California in 1966, he won all but three counties, I think. Uh, One, I'm curious as a Californian, how you think of the complete transformation of the political landscape in California since then. But second, um, can you talk about his tenure as governor, some successes and failures and how that sort of informed uh, maybe his governance as president?
1: Yeah, you know, he talks about um, in his diaries and in his autobiography that he learned a lot as governor of California. Um, he fought hard, both as governor and as president, to put the power back in the hands of the people and to get it out of the government, whether it was state government or federal government. Um, and that showed through all the years as governor and all the years as president. You know, as president, he fought, you know, he used the word federalism um but as um um governor of california he did a lot especially in the judicial system he didn't want to you know just randomly appoint judges because the judges had done him or his staff favors um he put it into um uh each county he he he'd create panels of people who would vet and determine who those judges should be, that would be best for the county. Um, those are the type of things that he really fought for, For again, first as governor and then as, um president of course lower taxes you know and (laughs) he asked about living in california the taxes in california are just (laughs) there's no word for how out of control they are and of course people you know trying to flee california in in droves and now they're telling stories about i don't know if this will pass or not but they're saying you know california is looking at creating a bill that if you move out of california you will keep california taxes for Mm. x number of years in your other state um that's always
0: a good sign for for nations for states is uh, trying to keep people's passing laws to, to keep people's <laughs> incomes right. or businesses or persons inside of the nation or
1: it's or, crazy. It, it's uh, crazy.
0: Wow. Okay. And so how are we, d- did he ever, were there major controversies as, as governor? Like what were some of those real highlights for, for his tenure as governor? Were, was it smooth sailing most of the time? I mean, his, it was probably
1: the biggest, um, and unfortunately, I can't go into too much detail just because I don't understand, you know, it's been so long since I've, you know, read and studied it. His biggest um, um, sort of thing in the news was um, the strikes, the student strikes mm-hmm. uh, at Cal State Berkeley. Um, I can't remember what year it was, um, but that was the biggest thing at the time of, um, I, I, if I can recall correctly um, from when he was governor
0: so moving into the presidency i think one of the things i always find fascinating because you can tell there are some uh dignitaries or public figures who will uh in public not really ever honestly assess here's what here's what i thought looking back were some of my biggest mistakes or biggest things i learned you know during my tenure in this position because you almost have nothing to to gain from it at that point you get a big press, uh, you know, palooza about, you know, uh, regretting, uh, a conflict overseas or some, or a pardon, or, you know, it's, it's very flashy. Um, but in private, often you find people in reflection will write things that they wish they would have done differently or, or key moments that, uh, maybe they feel like they fell short on. I'm, I'm wondering what for president Reagan, um, if anything, did you talk about, uh, mistakes or, or. Learning moments throughout the presidency.
1: In his autobiography, he discusses two um, that come to mind. Um, the first is the HIV crisis, the AIDS crisis of the mm. 80s. Um, he still, to this day, takes a lot of negative press over his, um, in the in the press's words, ignoring of the horrendous pandemic um, uh, disease um, that took over the United States um, during those years. In his autobiography, he discusses he wasn't ignoring it. um, He wasn't knowledgeable about it. Mm. Um, it, Whether it was in his briefings or what he was reading in the news, it never was brought to his attention. He never thought to think of it in that way, that it was a really big problem in America and needed to be addressed. Um,
0: Quick aside, one of the doctors briefing the president in those meetings was Dr. Anthony Fauci, if I'm not mistaken. I, right?
1: I think you're right. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. <laughs> OK, so that's, that's one. So that would
1: be one. The second, of course, which he's most known for, and no one's probably the bad word to use here, would be the, it would be the Iran-Contra uh, scandal, the selling of arms to Iran. Um, And he both in as president in a speech to the public and in his autobiography, I think, and even in his diary, he outwardly says so stepping back for a minute, Ronald Reagan led by letting others do their jobs and um, might not have always been in the weeds the way some leaders choose to be in the weeds. And so looking back, um, especially in his autobiography, looking back at the Iran-Contra scandal, that's what he says was his mistake. Um, uh, Not even just believing what he was told, but not digging deep enough, um, uh, accepting what was being told to him, not questioning um, what was being told to him or what wasn't being told to him, and then, of course, the arms being sold and, and and the downfall from that.
0: Got it. On the topic of maybe underappreciated things, uh, especially today, we don't live in an America where there is any kind of unifying, common, almost cartoonish enemy of the American people in the same way that we saw with the Cold War. And I think uh, and obviously, correct me if, if you think differently, uh, when Reagan entered the White House, to most people, the Cold War seemed the end of the Cold War was a very long way off and maybe was not really even in the in, in mainstream consciousness at all. And my understanding was that uh, Reagan, through his study uh, on uh, on the matter, had concluded, no, this is actually quite weak. Um, vulnerable and could crumble quickly. Um, could you talk about uh, the context of his entering office mm-hmm. under the auspices of this major geopolitical conflict and how that how that evolved? Especially yeah. people just don't seem to understand how large that loomed in the American context. Yes,
1: yeah, so Ronald Reagan entered, entered office in January of 1981. He went in with a handful of missions um, and freedom around the world was an ending communism were at the top of his list. Um, And he believed, and he proved to be right, he believed that one of the reasons why the Cold War was as big as it was is because the Soviets were building bombs and tanks and growing their military and their airplanes and all of those different things. And all the other nations around the world were sitting there. And he knew right away that it was American strength that really could bring an end to the Cold War. Um, My stats aren't, I I used to know them by heart, I don't think I know them by heart anymore, but like when he took office, something like 50% of Air Force planes in the United States actually worked. Um, um, Six out of 10 naval ships were operational. Like the numbers were staggering. Um, And the growth rate of what the USSR was doing versus what America was doing was, you know, David and Goliath kind of a thing. And so he focused on his peace through strength mantra. I don't want war. I'm not looking for war. But if America isn't strong, there's no reason for these other countries to listen to us. And so he immediately started building back up the military, um, making soldiers proud to serve. Um, That was key. He raised pay um, for American soldiers and across all military branches, um, got them the equipment they needed, got them the uniforms they needed, um, made them proud to serve our nation again. And in doing so, it brought Soviet Union to the bargaining table. His other thing was peace uh, was face-to-face diplomacy. Um, he believed so strongly that you can't just write a letter or make a phone call. You need to have meetings with these people. And as early as March of 1981, actually about three weeks, so April of 81, about three weeks after his assassination attempt, he started reaching out to Soviet leaders, uh, Brezhnev in 81 and Andropov and and all of them, trying to get them to come to the table and have discussions. They all ignored him. It wasn't until Mikhail Gorbachev took office in, I believe, 85, um, that he found a partner. And that actually helped bring in the end uh, the Cold War much faster as well.
0: Very interesting. Um, so obviously there's so much I want to talk to you about during the presidency, but I wanted to make sure I asked this uh, after the presidency, we've seen, I think, a shift in how former presidents influence politics after leaving office, especially in the, in the last, I would say, three administ- three to four administrations, very different um, than historically. How did Reagan conceive of his role in the party following the presidency? Obviously, that's something people are thinking about a lot uh, with President Trump, but it was the same thing with with Obama and with uh, George.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, your question, the timing of your question's uh, funny, because I actually just wrote our next podcast. And it's on the President's Club, how um, uh, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton relied on President Nixon for foreign policy. and you know the, the different relationships between you know um, uh, you know Clinton and Bush, who hated each other, ended up post presidency becoming great partners in um, you know tsunami relief and all these different things. It's incredible what presidents can do post presidency. When Ronald Reagan left in 1989, um, he focused on. course, his time at home with his family and his wife, but he did a lot of speeches overseas. He went to Japan and spoke um, um, back to, he went back to Germany for the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, uh, visits with Margaret Thatcher. But unfortunately, as we know, um, just four or five years after leaving office, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, And that really changed the focus of his final, you know, years in life because he wasn't able um, to be that supporter and that helper of the other presidents as some other former presidents have been. Um, After the um, November of 1994, when they came out and announced to the public that he had Alzheimer's, he really retreated. um, Worked from his office in Century City, but um, at a smaller scale, much fewer speeches. And then beyond 1999, I don't think he made any public appearances at all.
0: In in that four or five year window, was he endorsing candidates? Was he going to stump speeches for for doing all that sort of retail politics sort of stuff?
1: He was. I believe he went to the 1992 RNC convention. Um, He helped President Bush, who was, of course, his vice president, as often as he could. Um, um, But again, in 94, that was pretty much the end of that.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, wrapping up here, I would love your thoughts on, in an age of American pop culture where uh, people with the exact demographics of a Ronald Reagan, um, meaning older, white, male, powerful people, um, aren't exactly held at, in the, the highest regard in pop culture, uh, what are some, some universal lessons, do you think, uh from his life or leadership that anyone should be able to to relate to
1: so again the power in the american dream that it doesn't matter where you came from in life it doesn't matter where you are right now in life if you can dream it you can achieve it um The power of face-to-face diplomacy, and that can be, you know, even I say to my kids all the time, stop texting, you're upstairs, come downstairs and have a conversation with me, you know, um, It's so important to have that human interaction, to to create the partnership, create the friendship, create the dialogue. That is so important um, that anyone, regardless of gender or race, can be whomever they want. You know, Ronald Reagan talked about it all the time. When he took office, he said, I will make sure there is a woman, as long as someone is qualified, on the Supreme Court. And, you know, Standard Day O'Connor, you know, there's no reason why like Kamala Harris being vice president, that's the kind of thing he strove for. Um, And I think that just, we say it character and citizenship. Mm -hmm. That is really lost in today's pop culture society, just being a good citizen. And if we could teach any lesson um, from the Reagan library to the youth, and we we actually have a lot of um, lessons and programs here for high school and college students, it's being a better citizen.
0: So, uh, Melissa, during this interview, mentioned uh, her podcast, which is fabulous and you should definitely listen to America's Talking Network has added the Reagan Foundation podcasts to our network. People can find those at America's dot com. I highly encourage you to listen to them, regardless of what you think of the former president. That's there's always really, really, really important lessons to learn. Um, and you can impress your friends with your detailed deep knowledge of historical facts so um melissa thanks so much for joining us
1: oh thank you so much for having me